Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sapphire Wire podcast. I'm Lisa Johnston. And I'm Kyle Johnston. And here we are. It's after the November 4th election, and we're going to start with the recap. And, of course, in the big races in Kansas, Brownback was reelected for his second term as governor, and Roberts was elected once again to be the U.S. Senator from Kansas. Now, some people think that this is ironic, given that Brownback is seen as economically running Kansas into the ground with multiple credit downgrades and defunding of education, and Roberts has been seen by some as out of touch with Kansas or kind of checked out or not really fulfilling his responsibilities. But I think personally what it comes down to is two things. One, that people voted pretty reflexively by party, and then also they were leaning toward the evil they know versus someone they were less familiar with. Yeah, it's kind of a frustrating pattern in politics where even though we've talked about this before, that Congress especially has the lowest approval rating in history, they also have the highest rate of incumbency. So it's the same people just keep getting elected over and over. Um, so there's no rhyme or reason or logic to it, but that's kind of is what it is. So in the governor's race, um, the percentages, the unofficial percentages uh, on the Secretary of State's website, which we'll link to from sapphirewire.com, uh, Brownback Davis was 50% for Brownback and 47% for Davis. And in the Roberts Orman race, the numbers were a little more skewed, so it was uh, 53% for Roberts and 43 for Orman, with the rest of them, the votes going to Keen Umber, the Libertarian candidate. Now, Keen was the Libertarian for governor, right? Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but there was, I think, a third candidate for Senate, although I don't recall his name right off the top of my head. But now, what's interesting, you brought up the incumbency effect and how people are often reelected as incumbents and that is just so pervasive. Now what's interesting in Kansas this year though is that often what drives that is a huge money differential. But we didn't really have that nearly as much in either of these races because both Davis and Orman were extremely well funded uh, compared to what we've seen with challengers in years past. So I think the Davis campaign had announced that they in total had raised over four million dollars during like the whole campaign cycle and Orman of course not only raised quite a bit of money but put a lot of his own in and so they were extraordinarily well funded as challengers which is is unusual uh, although a lot of third-party money got put put into the races in the state too yeah, so the campaigns were pretty, like you said, pretty much evenly matched in terms of fundraising and spending, um, but there were, was that third-party money from you know what some people call dark money groups, um, uh, which consists of PACs and, and things like that where you can't really tell where the money's coming from. Um, and then also the Republican Governors Association poured a lot of money into the governor's race. So a lot of the nasty right. commercials that we saw, especially late in the election, um, a lot of those were funded by by the Republican Governors Association. Right, so the outside spending that's not by the campaigns. Exactly. It's either, you know, the dark money groups don't have to disclose their donors, but then you have well-known affiliated groups like the Republican Governors Association, and those are technically outside spending, but they're part of the branch of 
the expenditure groups that have to disclose donors and things like that. So there are a lot of types of groups that can mm-hmm. pour money into these races. So I wanted us to spend a little bit of time talking about why we think each of the candidates lost. And so we'll start with the governor's race with Davis. Now, from my perspective, um, of course, having run before and being uh, part of the Democratic Party, I've met Paul Davis, obviously. He's a very nice person. And of course, he's served in the State House for many years prior to running for this office. But if I'm being honest, I have to say that there was a real charisma gap in this mm-hmm. race. And one of Brownback's strengths, of course, that we talked about was that he has that charisma that he can turn on. Yeah, and exactly. The whole, I love Kansas and the thing he does. And Davis, um, it, that's just really not part of his personality. Mm-hmm. And he's very, you know, factual. And I think that, you know, his campaign staff and leadership did work with him, but in general, he's not as exciting of a presenter. He's a little bit boring sometimes, and so I think there was an issue there, and then, you know, he really hammered on the I'm not Brownback angle. That was a lot of the focus of the campaign. This other guy is terrible, and I'm not him, Uh, but the problem with that that I have said all along is that if you're not inspiring people and expressing your own vision along with saying this other guy's a problem, you know, that is an issue and voters may not be as inspired to vote for you as they need to be in that case. Exactly. And that kind of goes back to the idea of the evil, you know, and especially that becomes true if the evil you don't know or, you know, quote unquote evil, I'm not saying that he's evil, but um, if he's not defining his position and saying what he's for, it's like you said, there's he's not going to inspire anybody to vote for him. And even some of the issues where, you know, he uh, reporters or the press got answers out of him, it was pretty much, well, I'm going to investigate that. I'm going to look at that. We'll kind of consider rolling the, that back. Um, I think he realized that even if he won the governor's race with a strong, strongly Republican House and Republican Senate in Kansas, he pretty much didn't control, doesn't, couldn't control the legislation. So Right. And not uh, only that, but in the case of, you know, he got asked a lot about the financial situation and the tax situation. And he didn't really give a lot of definitive answers because a he didn't want to because the reality is we're revenue poor and something has to be done and so he didn't want to be i think too prescriptive on that and then also what you're saying about you know the governor doesn't unilaterally control everything the legislature has to pass the tax uh, Mm -hmm. legislation and the budget and everything and that goes to the governor but ultimately they have the first stab at it and then you just get to sign off on it as the executive and the other thing regarding issues is i thought he and frankly democratic candidates across the board were too unilaterally focused on education that was the one specific he would bring up yeah over and over and over Uh, and it's an important issue don't get me wrong but i never felt like he successfully uh, nailed brownback in the way that he needed Mm -hmm. to Because Brownback was promoting this, we're spending record amounts on education and people who aren't policy wonks and don't know all of the data didn't understand who was telling the truth, I don't think. He never said, 
Governor, what you're saying is only true because you're talking about pension money. You're not talking about money in the classroom. And I said before when we talked about this, he needed to nail him on base aid per student and say at one point in time that was $4,400 a pupil and now it's like 3900 something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a problem. We're going backward. Yeah, And exactly. he never did that that I saw. Yeah, and they really never talked about any other issues. They touched on the economy. Um, we got some mailers that touched on that, but really it was all about education. So as you move out into western Kansas, certainly um, schools are being consolidated and closed due to Brownback's policies. But there's also topics of wages for you know workers in, mm-hmm. in kind of um, non-skilled labor type jobs. And there's the issue of water. So, you know, Western Kansas is running out of water, and that's a, I mean, that's critical to agriculture. It's critical to residents out there. Um, it's it's a it's a huge issue that's looming, and there's, you know, almost no discussion of that. Right. I think I saw it in in maybe one day of debating, but yeah, I think a couple of the debates brought it up. But in terms of the messaging and what they're focusing on, you weren't seeing that from the Davis campaign, certainly, like you say. And what was interesting is that the exit polling nationally showed that the economy and jobs were the top of mind issues for most people. And that, I feel, was totally missed Mm -hmm. by uh, the Democrats in this cycle. And then the final thing I'll say about the Davis campaign is I feel like there was some polling overconfidence, and I think there are problems with the polls, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But, you know, the campaign spent a lot of time making banners that they would put out on the website or on Twitter saying, we're ahead five points or whatever. Yeah, but... A, you can't rest on your laurels, and B, when you keep sending out that message, then it makes Democratic voters feel too comfortable, like, eh, we got this, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think that that could have been a little bit of an issue for them, too. So now, turning to why Orman lost, um, there are some overlaps, but some things that are specific to his campaign, obviously. I felt like he had some message problems, but mostly I felt like his message was too empty, He was just running on sort of an anti-government, I want to go and solve problems Mm -hmm. message, but there just weren't a lot of specifics in that. Yeah, so he didn't delineate the problems or describe how he would solve them. Um, So it kind of left you scratching your head and, and trying to kind of sort out what he was actually going to do. Right. And again, there was an element of the I'm not Roberts well, it was more embedded about, within I, that. I'm not Roberts and I'm not a Democrat either. I'm an independent. Right, and... right. I'm different and I'll change everything. Yeah. Uh, and then some of his specific proposals that he was a little bit more vocal about later in the campaign I thought were problematic and uninformed, particularly the one I've talked about numerous times regarding higher ed and capping tuition increases, and we won't go down that road again, but I I thought he had some problematic proposals. And this unwillingness that he had to tell people where he stood when he was specifically asked by everybody under the sun, who are you going to caucus with, who are you going to support for majority leader, it created this pig in a poke, let's make a deal kind of situation where... There's something behind door number one. Uh, vote for me and find out what it is. Yeah. And it opened the door to Roberts to, you know, claim that, you know, if you want to keep Harry Reid in control of the Senate, vote for Orman because he's, I mean, and Orman even said that he would caucus with whoever uh, was in power. So if, you mm-hmm. know, if it was a, a, a 51 count uh, majority for Democrats, uh, you can assume Orman would caucus with them, which keeps Harry Reid in power and kind of keeps things, you know, 
uh, it it's it's it was turned into a rallying cry for Republicans, and it you know obviously had some effect. Right, and following along onto that, Vice President Joe Biden, Mr. Gaffs himself, <laughs> in the days leading up to the election, made some kind of statement about, oh, if Orman wins, he's going to be with us which probably didn't help things. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that, oh, that's why he lost it, because I'm not sure people had enough time to even hear that, a lot of people, but it could have been one factor for a small number of folks. And then just like the Davis campaign, I think that there was some polling overconfidence. Uh, There was particularly one NBC Marist poll that had shown him like up 10 points, which there were huge problems with that poll. But I think that Maybe he also was thinking, oh, I got this. I'm going to win. Yeah. And then one other factor that Davis didn't face was that Orman as an independent, um, the, the state parties for what they are and what they bring to the table um, basically have a get out the vote operation that kind of kicks into high gear in the, the, the days leading up to the election. So that's people knocking doors, doing lit drops, making sure people get to the polls, whether that's giving them rides or kind of giving them information. Um, it's, it's really kind of reminding people and pressing them to get out and vote. And that's something that the party, the, both parties have built up over the years. So they're, you know, when they're doing phone banks and doing lit drops and all that kind of stuff, that's, that's really in, a, in some close races can, can sway the votes enough to, to win or lose a race. And Orman as an independent, certainly, um, I, I read that he hired staff to do some of that, but it's, you know, you're kind of building it all from scratch and that, that presents a challenge. So, um, and and I think going forward, that's going to be something that anybody who runs in in an independent, a true independent is going to face. So, um, you know, you could make the argument that if, you know, somebody's maybe run as a Democrat in the past and they want to run as an independent, but still kind of have loose connections with, uh, either party that, you know, maybe they could use some of their get out the vote operation, but really doing it on your own um, presents some unique challenges. It does. It absolutely does. So we've talked about these poll issues. So let's explore that a little bit more in detail. Nationally, there were huge discrepancies between yeah. the polling and then what actually happened on election night. And Kansas uh, was no exception to that. There were some major differentials. And we had talked during one of our podcasts uh, about several of the polls and why they were so different. And, you know, what people sometimes don't realize is that all of these polling groups, they have their own methodology, they do their own, you know, samples and decide what the composition of the sample is going to be. And the problem was that when I examined the composition of the samples with a lot of these polls, they weren't representative of the voters of Kansas who were likely to turn out in the election. Most of them overrepresented either Democrats or independents, or in some cases, both. And so that was an enormous problem that skewed the data uh, in favor of both Davis and Orman in, Mm -hmm. in all of the polls that did that. Yeah. So, yeah, in our area, in terms of demographics, I think the registration is 50% Republican, 28% unaffiliated, and 21% Democrat. So anytime you have uh, a poll that shows, you know, even close numbers between Republicans and Democrats, you can pretty much guarantee that's going to skew the results and probably in in an unfavorable way for any Democratic candidate or even an independent candidate in this case. Right. And it was really interesting, this cycle, too, that I saw an interview that was done with some Republicans who indicated that they intentionally 
answered incorrectly or deceptively on the polls because they wanted to give the opposition the idea that they were ahead and create this false sense of security. So that was a variable that I think came into play maybe more than ever this time. And I think it's been going on for a while, but maybe it's building because I can remember in 2012 when I ran and we did two polls for my Kansas Senate race. One was kind of early to mid-October and then one was a little bit Mm -hmm. closer to the election. The early to mid-October one had me polling better among Republicans Mm -hmm. than among Democrats. And so then later, of course, that eroded. Uh, But I think that that in that early poll, there were some people who were sampled who were doing that deceptive Mm -hmm. answering business and distorting the poll results. And so I think Democrats who run need to be aware that that's an issue. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've had this election, let's talk about what's really going to be different and I guess a little bit of what might have been if things had gone the other way. So we'll start at the state level with the governor's race. So I know a lot of Democrats are really depressed right now and they're thinking, oh, four more years of Brownback. And I understand why they're thinking that. But I do want to make a point that a lot of people aren't going to like, but it's the hard truth, which is. If Paul Davis had been elected governor, in many ways, he would have been a day one lame duck. And the reason is the legislative supermajority in both houses in the Kansas House of Representatives and the Kansas Senate. Mm -hmm. The reality is that, of course, the governor does have certain executive authority and appointment powers and those sorts of things. Fine. But when it comes to laws passing a budget, tax policy, all of that has to go through the legislature. And so what we probably would have had is a situation in which the legislators, uh, many of whom are brownback cronies and uh, help to form the policy that's there, would put forward the things they wanted to do. Davis could veto it, mm-hmm. but then it would go right back to them and they had the votes, enough votes to override his veto. Yeah. And they would have made him essentially uh, inconsequential in some ways. And so... And could have, you could make the argument that that could hurt the Democrats in the long run because if they say, well, you have this Democratic governor and now look at you know all these uh, spending cuts he's made and... I mean, basically, they can pin all of the the bad stuff on him because because he's in leadership. If he had been elected, they would have pinned responsibility on him and and put all of this stuff on him, much in the same way that Obama, after a a while, inherited all of Bush's problems because, well, you've been in office a while. They're yours now. And, you know, I know that Davis was indicating that he wanted to work in a bipartisan fashion and so forth. And I understand that, and I don't doubt that that was his vision, but I feel like that was uh, in some ways overly optimistic, much in the same way it was when President Obama took Mm -hmm. office and said the same thing. The reality is if you have staunch conservatives who are your enemy, they're not going to just all of a sudden say, oh, yes, let's all be friends and work together. And, you know, what we would have seen is a microcosm, I think, of what happened nationally that would have come to Kansas in terms of, like, the tensions between the parties. Yeah, well, I think that is going to happen nationally now because we're starting to hear Obama talking about how he wants to work with the Senate and the House and and get things done. But um, Mm. they have such a hate for him 
um, I don't see that being kind of a realistic goal. Right. Um, but it will be interesting to see kind of how this um, plays out for Brownback because on Twitter today, I'm already seeing some of the uh, the House candidates that won talk about the spending cuts that they're going to have to make. So I want to say it's like they have to cut $250 million out of the state budget right off the bat to make up for the loss of revenue from Brownback's tax cuts from from his from his current term so right. um, we're gonna see some uh, pretty big impacts on services all over the state and the only way that counties and cities are going to have to make up for that revenue are uh, property tax increases tax levies things like that so um, one way or the other this is going to hit everybody's pocketbooks everybody's going to feel the pinch and um, it, it could play out much differently in, in four years. Right. And like to, like I always like to say, in the end, we all pay somehow. Yeah. If you're not paying it in state income tax, you're going to pay some other way, like yeah. you're making the point. Before we leave the issue of the state situation and what uh, might, might have been different or needed to be different, uh, one of the things I wanted to say is, you know, this cycle... Not only did the Republicans keep their supermajority in the House of Representatives in Kansas, they increased it. Yeah. And I think the state party has been uh, notoriously ineffective in supporting down-ballot races yeah. for House and Senate in the way that they need to, to make sure that if we can elect a governor at some point, that they have enough of a caucus that they can partner with reasonable moderate Republicans and get things done. Yeah, so they, they lost ground in some pretty, uh, what should have been easily winnable races. And even in South or, or safe counties like Wyandotte County, which is uh, typically very strongly Democratic, you know, it's a, it's a stronghold. Um, one of the representatives there, Tom Burroughs, who we know and, and like, he's a great guy, only won his race by 148 votes. Wow. So every other uh, race, um, kind of house race in Wyandotte, um, won by pretty significant margins. So other races, they were winning by a minimum of 28 points, and he's winning by, you know, less than 200 votes. So Yeah, that um, was a very narrow victory. Yeah, which is, it, it's really surprising. But I think it goes back to, like you were saying, the, the Kansas Democratic Party has had this attitude, I don't know for how long, for as long as we've been kind of interacting with them and, and kind of watching them of, for as much as they criticize Brownback for kind of buying into trickle-down economics, they buy into trickle-down campaigning. So they pretty much pick a top ticket race that they want, that they think they can win and they're going to invest a lot of money in. In this case, it was the governor's race. So they put all their money and resources in, into that. And basically anybody, you know, down ballot has to rely on kind of the momentum from these these kind of top ticket races to carry their races. So yeah. they get less resources. They don't get um, the, the ground support that they need. Um, and as you move out west, they get less and less support. In fact, there was a, a really detailed and uh, interesting article on Daily Coast today um, that talked about that in great detail and some of the, the ways they dropped the ball in, in races uh, out west. Um, so it's it's a significant problem. And it is. I, I was rereading an, uh, a series of articles you wrote uh, two years ago about kind of the, the issues with the party, um, things that they could learn from and hopefully do different. And in rereading that article uh, today, or those series of articles, they basically haven't changed anything. So mm -hmm. the, the same complaints, 
that were that you lodged in in 2012 we experienced in 2010 and uh, other candidates experienced in 2014 it is a losing strategy and until they make some significant changes it's going to continue to happen yeah things have to change i am going to I agree with you on everything you said, except I would call what they do instead of trickle down, trickle up, because what they want is for the people down ballot to buy into the coordinated campaign, and then they use a lot of those resources yeah. to support the upstream well, no, people. No, it is. That, I mean, that still uh, plays into the trickle down idea, because the idea is like you, you know, as a taxpayer, you give your, your, your tax dollars to the rich people and they'll create jobs and you'll get that money back, but it just, <laughs> it doesn't happen. And so I know. to kind of uh, carry on that idea, so for coordinated campaigns, which is a strategy that the KDP uses, it, the idea is is that if candidates can pool their money together, so, you know, as a House candidate, you might put in 15 to, you know, $30,000, depending on, on your fundraising, that money is then pooled with money from other candidates and used to buy... Um, uh, get mailers. Out, yeah, get out the vote services, mailers. Ground services, yeah. Um, so it's kind of an economy of scale concept, but there's no guarantee that that money goes into your race and then you lose control of your messaging, right. um, timing of things. Uh, you, you basically kind of give up all control to the KDP and that historically has not played out well for those candidates. And I understand the idea of trying to give everybody more. And I think if it was, if that really happened, it would be a good thing. But the problem with the one message across the whole state is that in some districts, the message they're choosing has some problematic elements. You have to have more flexibility and be able to tailor the messaging. Like for example, in our house district, Don McGuire was running against a young woman who had been in the House of Representatives and also had been a former teacher in Johnson County. Yeah. And the messaging was all about education. Yeah. And so that was a problem for him, I thought, because then people would look at her and say, well, she's a teacher. Yeah. She wants to protect education. And so all all of the coordinated campaign messaging didn't help him as much as it might have helped other people because yeah. of that. And he had, uh, Don had experience in, in business and sales, and so he right. could have easily played that up in, in relation to the idea of, you know, concerns about the economy and things like that. Exactly. But because that messaging is being controlled by the KDP and the coordinated campaign, he has no say in that. And so kind of what you were referring to, to expand on that a little bit in case people don't know, is that mailers, when they go out um, and they're kind of coordinated by the state party, is that they basically will create a template that has one message and they will drop in um, a headshot of a candidate, drop in the candidate's name, and then it's pretty much cookie cutter uh, flyers going right. out to every district. The so exact same mailer for, you know, however many yeah. different candidates. So that's that's a strategy that both parties use, uh, not only at a state level, but nationally. So um, we talked to somebody who recently went to Texas and was kind of struck by the, the fact that the TV ads they are running in Texas were identical to the TV ads they are running in Kansas. So they just <laughs> yeah. swap out the photos, but it's the same attacks, the same arguments. Right. and Total boilerplate. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's, it's economies of scale. Well, before we close today, I did want to talk about the national scene mm-hmm. and, you know, what if anything is really different now that the Republicans are taking over control of the Senate and we're hearing all this messaging about we can lead again and now we can get something done and I'm going to be a cynic and say I don't think so (laughs) and here's why because you know we have the filibuster in the senate it's a problem it's been a problem and so now okay yes 
The Republicans have the majority, but what's going to happen? The Democrats are going to use the filibuster to block things, much in the same way that when the Democrats had the majority, the Republicans used it to block things. And if and when the Republicans in the Senate can get around the filibuster, and they do sometimes, and they could get something through the Senate and through the House of Representatives, President Obama will just veto it. And so we are in for, don't fool yourself, more gridlock. It's going to take a slightly different form, but... Uh, you know, like you said earlier, President Obama and pro- probably the presumptive future majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, went on TV today making the niceties, mm-hmm. saying, oh, we want to work together. We want to find common ground. That'll last about 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we'll see what happens when the rubber meets the road here. But I'm convinced that both sides are very entrenched. And, you know, the Republicans fought so hard to block things and didn't want the Democrats or Obama to have any wins. And if they think that now that they're in the majority and the Democrats are the ones that can filibuster to block them, if they think the Democrats are going to be like, oh, yes, we're going to let you have victories, Mm -hmm. it's never going to (laughs) happen. You know, they're going to pay them back big time by being just as obstructionist, I think. So, I mean, hopefully they'll at least have the good sense to not, you know, go to the brink of, you know, defaulting like they did in the past with the debt ceiling stuff. I mean, Mitch McConnell did take a position on that today. So hopefully they can be reasonable enough to not get our credit downgraded again. But in terms of like actually passing legislation, I think that we're still in for gridlock nationally. Don't let anybody fool you. This business about, oh, things are going to be great now. Nah. I don't, I don't believe it. Yeah, we'll see if their approval ratings can go any lower. <laughs> yeah, they can give it a try. Okay, well, that does it for today. And as usual, we'll be posting some links online. Yep, on sapphirewire.com. Okay, thanks to everybody. See you next time. Thank you.